In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. I looked a little at these words. Vengeance really means vengeance, and save really means save. We might be inclined to say, surely if he comes with vengeance, he will judge and he will punish. The text says he comes able to punish, more than able to judge, but he saves. That's the place we're going today, to justice and to mercy. Justice, blind justice, which is no respecter of persons, as we're told in the letter of St. James, the exercise of which requires that all who are to be treated equally, the same, impartially, before the law, the law of God. And mercy, which, in an act of outrageously bold kindness, subverts justice, of which justice, on which, rather, on justice, mercy is nonetheless totally dependent for its very existence, which makes it all the more outrageous. Indeed, mercy without justice is a meaningless notion, an empty concept, unless there is a law and the means to enforce the law, that act of mercy is just simply cheap grace. Now, love, life lived in a world without justice would be difficult, and we can kind of see what it's like when the law is set aside. Life lived in a world without mercy is impossible for us to imagine. No, it's very easy for us to imagine, for our whole life in this world inclines away from mercy. Everything in this world inclines to law. An eye for an eye, lex talionis, you know the thing. Where does this law come from? From humanity? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. No, from God. A word to the wise for those of us who invoke the commonly received wisdom that nobody's perfect in the hope that God would relax his standards a bit that he would ease up on us, listen to our special pleading, and honor the fact that if he could see us within, if he could see me within, he's really not such a bad fellow after all, really, at least when you compare me with others. Not so bad as all that at all. There are many worse and much worse to come. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one blot in the copybook, one jot, one iota, circumscribed, it all comes crashing down on our heads. Uh, these are God's standards, and he expects what he sets forth, perfection. Having taken the trouble to show us how to walk blameless in his sight, he can be forgiven for having little regard for our attempt to excuse our failure to walk the line in this spiritual sobriety test. To maintain our moral equilibrium, we cut a rather graceless figure. Yes, grace, mercy, is his solution 
to the problem of our inability or indifference or indigence. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We hear him say that on judgment day, then we can just relax, not so fast. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. There's something more at work here than trying to keep the perfect law, failing, realizing indeed, as God seems to be saying, that yes, nobody's perfect, I will have compassion, and then being gently reminded, the one who is furthest from the reach of God's mercy is not the one who has failed to keep the law, it's the one who has failed to show mercy on those who have failed to keep the law. Therefore, whatever we require of others, it had better be liberally, liberally dosed with compassion. It is the one thing he will ask in return for his act of kindness, his outpouring of himself upon the cross, made so that we might not be without compassion. Elemon, mercy. Curie eleison, we sing We chant, we speak already today, Lord have mercy. When did we chant that? When we heard the law read, as we just did in the letter of St. John's. The royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As soon as the service has started then, we know a thing or two. The Lord can see the contents of our hearts and nothing is hidden. He looks for purity of heart, that means purity of intention, intention with our acts. And he who lets us know what acts he asks of us, our reply cannot be then, I'm on it, Lord, I can do it again. No, Lord, have mercy. There's no way I can do this. It goes down from there, reaching its nadir when we stand for the general intercessions, the prayers of the people and search our own hearts for the ways we have failed to love in the last seven days. The litany extends from those nearest and dearest to us to the farthest reaches of creation. That's the domain of our responsibility to God, is our responsibility for this whole creation. That's how we set it up in the garden. It's never been repealed, never revised, never relinquished. We stand accountable, better responsible for all the mess on this earth, responsible for that to which our hearts are called to respond, the suffering of a groaning creation crying out under the burden of our sin. That's the classic story, and it sticks, and we stick to it here. Psychologically, it's impeccable and very difficult to argue it down. It still sticks. No matter how we may be tempted to dumb it down, it sticks. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, we make a few moves here. We have to accept that judgment will not find in our favor, so set that hope aside. That means we have no cause to look down, to show partiality over and against those who seem to show, to make manifest much more visibly than us, what we know, if we were honest, to be true of ourselves, but which we do well to keep hidden, or so we believe. I stand up here in these beautiful robes made in Belgium, 
beautifully embroidered, the best that Europe can produce, therefore the best that the world can produce. <laughs> Thank you very much. I stand in these splendid robes and I hope that they'll contribute something to the intent of what I am trying to say. But imagine for a moment that we had to stand as we really are before God. That that which we most thought to keep to ourselves under these robes were suddenly to be made manifest for all the world to see. It would be a shame, and the word indeed is shame. Shame is a state of being. It's an affective state. It's supposed to be effective, too. And the church, of course, guards its power to administer shame jealously. That's what this plastic collar means. But shame is a combination of the two primary emotions of fear and disgust. If you see one of these wheel of emotions that were made by the psychologist Robert Plutchik, you will see that where uh, fear and disgust meet, they are diametrically opposite from optimism. Indeed, shame is nothing if not the state of having any grounds for optimism pulled out from under one's feet. And we heap shame on others, knowing, of course, that we're all in this together, to keep them in their place. It's a pretty easy mark, especially if it is their place to wear the shame that we feel most about ourselves, if we could but find a way of pasting it on somebody else. This is how it works. If we are to look into our own souls for that which is the darkest in our hearts, we're not going to find it by looking there. We're going to find it by looking out in the world and see the person or persons that trigger us the most, that get us the maddest, that get us pounding our fists again and again. They've done it again even as we get out to face the morning. We find a way of pasting that shame on somebody else. We call it projection. And we'll get away with it if we can. That's the bully's strategy. And these days we get daily lessons on bullying 101, master classes, if any were needed, the art of the bully. Now, before you are trying to imagine who I might have in the crosshairs of my Ruger one-shot hunting rifle to call the bully-in-chief, let me tell you who that one is. That bully is me. If anyone knows me, they don't need that to be brought to their attention. And the reason I see that so strongly on someone else is because God is setting a mirror in front of me whenever someone else has that kind of power over me to get me going like this. All those darn fill in the blank. It's all in here. I can be grateful for having a bully pulpit, I suppose, but I am just the bully in the pulpit. Even the dog, if he gets in my way when I'm trying to get somewhere, will feel my wrath invoked, as will God. Bullies like to prey on the weakness of others, however. And there's no one more loyal and kind than our dogs. They forgive anything. They will instill fear, fear that the object of their attentions will be shamed, humiliated for their weakness, for their lack of strength put in their place. In this world's way of reckoning, in this world's economy in which everything is win or lose, 
That's the way we train ourselves to operate. And therefore, we tend to look up to those who show signs of being winners and get ready to deal out an even worse hand to those who look like losers. It never fails. St. James has something to say about this. If you pay attention, if you look up to, he says, the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, come right up front. Well, you say to the poor man, uh, sit in the back, but if you want over there out of sight, if you don't mind. And earlier he says, that man is wearing clothes too. They're not just ragged, but filthy, dirty, soiled, sordid clothes. Imagine you have only one loincloth, one pair of underpants. You wear it 24-7 and you never get to change it. That's what God is saying about the poor man's clothing. Let your imagination do the work. If you look away in disgust, James says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Are you not then projecting your own you-know-what on that poor person with the one set of underpants? You have dishonored the wrong man, God says. If you could look into that person's heart, you might be surprised at who is really rich and who is really poor, who is really the heir of the kingdom and who is not. And James is merciless at this point in saying, if you set it as your task in life to, to accumulate worldly wealth, you're going into the gates of heaven with a great disadvantage. Be warned. If that's how you use the time that you have been given to get as much as you can for yourself, just imagine that the scales are tilted very heavily in not in your favor. Give it some thought. Unequivocally, give it some thought. Riches can do good in a blue moon when you give them away. We tend to hang on to them. and The Bible is clear about this. We'll return to that at another time, maybe when health and wealth comes onto the agenda. And with all respect to those who like their health and wealth, fine. But if you feel it is your due and nothing less will do, then be advised that the gradient of grace in the scripture flows in one direction, downhill, with a preferential option for the poor, the weak, the sick, and the losers of society. So Jesus takes us to a different place, and he gathers all these loose threads together in his acts of healing. Again, the act of healing itself is an act of mercy. It's one of the greatest achievements of the human race to have begun to try to heal to care for those who in the days when we were hunter-gatherers or pastoral nomads, we simply threw to the side of the road. The old and the sick were left to die where they dropped to the ground. The group could not be sacrificed for the well-being of one member, of one individual. Life was too precious and too fragile. It was indeed seen as a winner's and loser's scenario. So when Jesus goes on his healings, 
his acts of mercy, we have to see them as revolutionary as they are. Look at the subjects of his mercy today, too. One is a Gentile, the other is a Judean. And look at the utter humility of the Gentile, the Syrophoenician woman, the outsider of the outsider of the outsiders, who asks only for what will be left on the floor for the dogs. She says she is entitled to nothing more. She is entitled to God's justice. She will accept whatever he gives, just as the prodigal son comes home, not expecting mercy. I've heard people preach against that. He expects nothing, but maybe he'll be allowed his life. He comes expecting the hammer of judgment to fall on him, and he's ready for it and to agree with God and say, Yes, Lord, I am that sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God does. Justice is fine, but it is when we have given up any right to think that we deserve it when we have surrendered that God steps in with mercy. Now, that's good news for us. And the good news is this. If we do not find a way to humble ourselves enough, God will do it for us. (laughs) He will. Very good news. As an act of mercy. So, this is the God who joins us, however, in this ultimate act of mercy, the the humiliation of the cross. By now, we are all thinking, okay, if we've got to be so beaten down by God, so humiliated by him, doesn't that make God the ultimate bully? God who has the power to do anything with a touch to take the burden off our backs only brings us to a place of ultimate surrender and only then will give us what he has. We can brood on that. God uses his strength, but as Isaiah says, he comes with vengeance and he saves The God who sets himself in the ultimate act of humiliation on the cross, we God, we see only there, as Luther says, his bleeding, broken, filthy body. God says, Luther Luther says rather, God has become like pus, like excrement on the cross. Having taken into himself all our degradation indeed, he who was without sin, having become sin for us. This God opens his arms in mercy and says, and let me take you to the other side. Let me take you to the other side. So what do we do on this side? We pray that we may be healed of our fatal infatuation with power and with wealth, and in this culture the two are the same, and all that it entails. May we see ourselves as God sees us, not in these fine robes, 
but in these sordid, soiled garments, and yet opens his arms with love to us. May we see ourselves as the poorest and the neediest, the most vulnerable of God's creatures, and yet the beneficiaries of this outrageous, extravagant love. And when we have finally surrendered our pride and any pretense at being anything other than bit players in the world's power games, only then can God do his work in us, with us, and through us. And he will. Praise God. Amen.